Recruitment. At its core, it's about matching people with organizations. But with all the twists and turns, you might mistake talent acquisition for a thriller novel. Adrian Russo, innovator and co-founder of Recruit Locator, is bringing you a fresh podcast with style. This is Recruiting is a Cluster. From the preposterous to the practical, you'll hear stories from the field to help you stay on trend as we reshape recruitment for a brave new era and hopefully crack a smile while we're at it. Buckle up, it could be a wild ride. Here's Adrian. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Recruiting is a Cluster podcast. Once again, my name is Adrian Russo and I am your host for the show. A little bit about my background for the new listeners. I have 15 years of recruiting experience and five years of tech experience. I'm the co-founder of Recruit Locator, and I appeared in the Amazon Prime series Top Recruiter and was featured in the Art of Recruiting docufilm. So before we get started, I have to take a moment to thank all of our listeners. Our previous episode with Philip Gallucci absolutely blew away expectations. One of the things I'll say is we had a very, very long episode. I don't know if everyone here is a new listener or they listened previously, but the other episode was over 50 minutes long. That's a very long episode for a podcast. Once someone clicked the podcast, they listened for 80% of it. I'm not sure if that's a good metric. I'm not sure if that's a bad metric. But for a first episode, for a 50 plus minute episode, I am absolutely thrilled with that number. And I thank each and every one of you for taking the time to listen. And I appreciate all of you for returning to this podcast. A big, big thank you to our growing audience. Another thing, I absolutely love hearing from you guys. We had tremendous feedback from hiring managers, recruiters, and other business leaders. I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me on LinkedIn, Recruit Locator, and other platforms. I absolutely love hearing your feedback. If you have feedback to share, if you want to be a guest on the show, or you just want to say hi, feel free to email me at adrian at recruitlocator.com. That's A-D-R-I-A-N at R-E-C-R-U-I-T-L-O-C-A-T-O-R.com. Once again, I appreciate all the kind words from our listeners, and I hope you keep listening. I could promise everyone here, this is going to be a much different experience. You are going to continue to hear the absolutely most outrageous and true stories from the recruiting and hiring process that you will ever hear. And then we will use those stories for teachable moments for our audience. It doesn't matter if you're a candidate, if you're a hiring manager or a recruiter, everyone is going to get benefit from this. Our last episode talked about everything from the candidate's perspective to the hiring manager's perspective to even more of uh, an administrative perspective as an executive. You're going to learn these lessons from all of our guests and be able to take these podcasts, listen to them, get some funny outtakes from them, but also have some lessons to take back with you to your team. We're excited to welcome today's guest. He comes to us with a very diverse background in tech. He worked across all industries, including media, SaaS, tech startups, gambling, and gaming. He architected wildly successful products that all of our guests have used, particularly the gamers listening out there. Does anyone play video games? How about a title by EA? Well, he architected and tested their online pay-to-play platform, and he hired the team who built the pipeline to production. So if you've ever purchased an EA game online, then you have used his product. Have you ever taken a cab somewhere? If you paid in the backseat of a cab using a swiping device, then you use a product which sits in 25% of cabs nationwide 
That's a product that he helped build and architect. Of course, I'm sure we have some Shark Week fans out there. Who doesn't like Shark Week? If you've ever watched the Discovery Network show, then you can thank today's guest. His team's performed over 450 software releases per year across 150 unique applications to make Shark Week work. He has built and led teams at several Fortune 50 companies, and most recently at the organization behind the Preakness. If you enjoy betting on horse racing, then you should definitely go use one of his latest products. He made a long, long trip to join us in studio. I am pleased to welcome our next guest, my friend, Mario Biviano. Mario, how are you? Thank you, Adrian. I'm doing great. Good. So tell us a little bit. You made the long trip down here. Uh, how was it? It wasn't bad. I took an Uber and it worked. So points for that. So no cab? No cab today, no. No swiping device? No, no backseat card swiping device today, no. That's correct. <laughs> okay. So, so what have you been up to recently? Most recently, I've been working with a company that builds gambling and wagering applications. Our applications come in a variety of flavors, ranging from historical horse racing or slot machine style games through API-driven mobile applications, uh, where a user logs in, taps on a horse race, places a bet, and watches the outcome, and hopefully wins some money. So where would users interact with your app? Users interact with my app on mobile devices. You could find this app on an iPhone, an Android, mobile web. We even have a desktop experience. That's interesting. So was the team already in place when you arrived, or did you have to build a team? All the products I support have pre had pre-existing effort, and all of those efforts are now expanding, actually. So I've had the luxury uh, of being able to grow the teams. So what type of people work on your team? So I like to group my quality professionals into three buckets. I've got manual testers, I have quality engineers, and then I have software development engineers in test or estets who spend roughly 90% of their time automating tests. So it's safe to presume that you've hired a lot of engineers in your time, whether it's here or at other places. Sure. Uh, I was keeping count uh, when you mentioned the, this engagement and uh, yeah, it's over a hundred engineers. And I could personally vouch for that because, uh, full disclosure, Mary and I worked together for probably about four years at two different companies. Yeah, that's correct. I think it was four. About that. About that. Close yeah. enough. Close enough. Ballpark. <laughs> so um, I know we have some interesting stories to tell from uh, our various times recruiting together. And I'm really interested to see what story you decided to pick for this show. Oh, there's so many options. He didn't tell me in advance, by the way, so I'm really curious to see what he picked. So many options to choose from. So do you remember the internal referral we got at uh, one of the, the Salesforce shops that we worked with? Yeah, I remember we've had a couple internal referrals. So let's talk about one of those. Curious to see which one. Which story are you going with? Oh, the gentleman who liked to talk about pants. Oh, God. The guy that answered... Your hypothetical pants question. Yes. Okay, this is this is going to be uh, a hilarious story. This is probably one of the funnier recruiting stories I've ever had. So, so Adrian and I received an internal referral to, to screen a, a candidate for an engineering role. So, we looked over this individual's resume. The resume looked great. I mean, on paper, they looked like a fantastic candidate. I don't remember any red flag. Lord knows we screened out so many resumes. There, there were no red flags. I mean, it looked like a perfect resume. Yeah, it looked great. So hopes are high. Uh, so we get into a conference room, and we lead off with our typical battery of questions. Uh, 
one of which being uh, centered around engineering. And we start off with a very simple, you know, what, what do you like to code in? I, I feel that most folks that self-classify as an engineer, would software engineer at least, would be able to answer that question fairly simply. They pick a language. Pick a language. So I asked this question. I said, so what do you, what do you like to code in? And the candidate comes back with an interesting response. Uh, the, the candidate said, why code in Salesforce? Is Salesforce a language? Salesforce is not a language. What language do you use to program in Salesforce? Salesforce is in Apex. Apex. Which I believe is a, a fork of Java. Deprecated Java, I believe 1.2. One, 1.2, two. One, two, I think, yeah, it's 1.6 maybe. One, you're right, it's 1.6. I think it's 1.6. But anyway. So we, we asked the candidate, do you like to code? They said Salesforce. We said, okay, that's that's great. Uh, but you know what, what languages do you like to use when you're coding on Salesforce or, or with Salesforce? And the candidate confidently responded with Salesforce. So uh, at this point, I'm trying to lead the candidate to uh, a set of responses that will give me the data I'm really looking for to assess them from a hiring perspective. And so once again, I, I posit, okay, so what types of IDEs do you use? You know, perhaps this person could, could rattle off an IDE, which implies that there's a language. And what's an IDE? Integrated development environment. So I asked this uh, a candidate about the IDEs that they use under under the assumption that they would respond with uh, a, n- a number of IDEs, you know, Visual Studio, uh, you know, Notepad++, I would accept. <laughs> you accept anything at this point. Almost anything. Uh, and confidently, the candidate once again responded, Salesforce. So at this point, I could tell that the candidate was starting to get a bit frustrated. And I know we were getting a bit frustrated. Yeah, of course. At this point, we were wondering what he was thinking. So we started asking about the applications that this candidate has built. Uh, and again, the candidate miraculously managed to circle back around and, and mention Salesforce once again. The candidate was talking about how they, they couldn't effectively show us these applications because they were built on Salesforce and we didn't have access to their Salesforce account. Uh, then the candidate proceeded to offer up credentials to their Salesforce account so that we could see these applications, uh, of course, to which we denied. We're, no. we're not trying to get people's credentials in a job interview. That's preposterous. Uh, and, and at this point, my my brain kind of centered back on that core engineering question. You know, it, we had spent at least 30 minutes with the candidate and had no idea if this person could write me a Hello World application or a line of code in absolutely any language, which was a core requirement for the role, even though they had dozens of applications listed as developed. So at this point, I'm expecting the candidate to go into Salesforce. I'm thinking it's a free versions they give you and it's his own personal development environment. So I'm waiting for him to log in and show us one of the solutions he built. So I asked this candidate you know, how they were able to build these applications and were they able to code them in any way? You know, how, how did you code the application that you're, you're trying to show us? And the candidate responded once again with, with Salesforce. And I, you know, I think it was a weak moment because I was frustrated, the candidate was frustrated, and I, I made a comment that, that stuck with me, you know, it was a learning moment. You know, I said, I, I don't think you're understanding my question. I'm really trying to understand if, you know, you have the ability to write code or not, because we expect the person in this role to write lots of code. And it, it, to me, it seems like a very binary question. Either you write code or you do not write code. Kind of like if you're wearing pants or not wearing pants. To which the candidate immediately responded, 
Oh, no, no, sir. I am not wearing any pants. <laughs> the funniest thing about this was he failed to answer once again whether or not he codes. And he chose to answer the hypothetical question as to whether or not he was wearing pants. It wasn't even posed to him. It was used as an example. You're either wearing pants or you're not. And he just chose to answer it. That's correct. He interpreted it as a direct question uh, and, and responded to that question. It was ridiculous. At, at one point, I remember our CMO popping his head in and mouthing, did he just say he's not wearing pants? It was, it was that comical. Un unbelievable. It, it's one of those moments where the world stops and you start to go through the decision tree. What decisions did I make to get me in a room with a kid <laughs> on an interview with a candidate talking about whether or not they're wearing pants? It's like you just asked a simple question. You're, you're saying, do you code? It's, and you gave an example. It's binary. You either wear pants or you don't wear pants. You could have said socks. You could have said shirt. You could have said shoes. <laughs> but what are the odds that you say pants and this candidate not only wasn't wearing them, but he chooses to tell you he's not wearing them on a job interview? Very confidently. Very, confidently? Very confidently. And that, and that stuck out. You know, this candidate obviously is quite transparent and honest, and those are great qualities. Uh, However, they don't give me any indication of their ability to write code or debug other people's code, which is really what, where I was going to go with that. He answered confidently because it was the first question he got right. <laughs> Presumably. the first question he got right. That's a good point. Provided, provided he wasn't wearing pants, that would have been the first question he got right. That is, that <laughs> is the first question that he got right. Though considering he did lie about coding, he may have been lying about not wearing pants. <laughs> it was a phone interview, so we'll never know. It's an excellent point. It taught me then that folks see the definition of programming of drastically different. Uh, everybody interprets it differently. And I think this person, you know, even, even some years ago, demonstrates that where they were quite adamant, Salesforce development resulting in Salesforce applications was strictly, absolutely squarely software engineering programming, while the definition that I was using with non-common vernacular was absolutely not that. And I was looking for somebody that could write code <laughs> that, that compiled and, and spoke with or near Salesforce, in addition to debugging other engineers we had on staff were writing code. It's funny you bring that up. On the podcast last week, we had a guest on that said they had this similar issue with cloud engineers, that rather than using the AWS CLI, a lot of these engineers are just clicking buttons in the console, and they're considering that, you know, engineer level tasks. So it sounds like you're having a similar problem with engineers in the software engineering field. Absolutely. It is a very common problem where kind of disparate definitions of engineering uh, are, have pervaded the industry and turned largely a science into more of an, an art. It's puzzling to me that as an industry, we can't come to a an empirical definition of engineer or program when these systems are absolutely empirical in nature. In my mind, you know, the term engineer obviously is up for debate and people have different thoughts there. Putting that aside, programmer, software developer, those to me all imply you're using an IDE, you're using a programming language to write code, to develop services that will compile either at execution or at runtime. Yeah. 
To me, that's a developer. To me, that is a programmer. I don't know how there's any other definition around it. It is remarkable. And again, circling back to that candidate, years of experience, dozens of, of applications, but couldn't give me any semblance of definition of what those applications were made of or how they were structured. And it, and it makes you wonder. I, I heard an anecdote, a really smart gentleman, around technology. And that person said that technology is really more like power, meaning like an electrical power, such that when you flip the light on, power hits your light bulb. And that is technology. You don't need to know how the power got to your light bulb. Whereas, you know, a lot, a lot of folks don't, don't see it like that. And I it's an interesting perspective. And I think some of the folks that would call themselves programmers and, and can't write a line of code that's interpreted or compiled, subscribe to that kind of philosophy. I don't know how people take that perspective. I understand the analogy of, okay, I just want to know that when I turn on the light, the light bulb works. I don't need to know how the rest of the process works. That's fine if you're using a light bulb, but if you're an actual technologist or you're an engineer, what happens when the, when the user calls you and says, hey, my light bulb's out? Right. And your first response is, cool, put in another one. Right. And they say, I just did that. None of my light bulbs work. I agree it's a problem. Engineers should understand how compiled and interpreted languages function at some level, first and foremost. Uh, but to address that challenge, I, I think the way you do it is, is like many others. You have to demonstrate the value of understanding what those components do. And, you know, and I think it plays into that story we've got with no pants man. We should have asked the question in a way that would have drilled into the internals, but it's really hard if you don't know what the app does or how it works. Well, and it's, I think it's fine if you are, you know, an engineer that's using pre-compiled components to build an application. We certainly have a need for that. I think the point that I'm trying to underscore is we're starting to see more and more that there's not as many people who are writing code. Yeah, it's, I, I like the, the light bulb analogy where the solution is to plug another one in. We have fewer and fewer folks that can actually you know, serve as an electrician to figure that out. And that's, I think that's where the challenge is. Everything works great when the black box is whirring, but when it breaks, somebody has to know how to service it, ideally rebuild it. It seems to me like a, a very big challenge. That, that should be addressed before all the black boxes perhaps stop worrying. <laughs> That's interesting. How would you recommend that something like this be handled differently in the future? Recounting that story and, and thinking about it as a, as a learning moment, you know, I can safely confidently say I've evolved quite a bit. That was quite a while ago. Uh, nowadays, I, I think recruiters and sourcers should ask for a code sample up front. Uh, ask the engineer about their open source contribution. Ask them to showcase the work they've done at a code level. Uh, and I, I think you'll start to get more positive results than uh, making the mistake of leading with, uh, you know, do you, do you write code, I suppose, is the first question. Well, in fairness, you would expect that when you received the resume at that point, someone would ask if they wrote code. In this case, it was a VIP who gave you the resume, so maybe not. True. It, you know, it was, it was a situation where somebody wanted a referral to be screened. So we went through and, you know, there wasn't mutual alignment, but, but that is, you know, that was the task that was given. And, but yeah, you know, getting code up front is a good one. Uh, there, there are even COTS products that will 
you know, check that code for, for plagiarism. I can tell you from, from my experience in grad school, they still do that as well. But you brought up three interesting points in that. The first one was you mentioned wanting to see like a Git repo. Sure. That was one. The other was you wanted to see what their open source contributions were. Absolutely. And then lastly, and kind of jokingly, you, you mentioned whether or not their code sample is authentic. Correct. The interesting thing about that is those are the same three things our last guest mentioned as well. He brought up the fact that he would like to see recruiters provide code samples, check out open source contributions, and also provide some means to verify that the code that they're submitting is their own. So what we're hearing two weeks in a row, two guests in a row, two different guests in a row, is that we should have code samples, we should verify the code samples, and we should check the open source contributions before it even hits the hiring manager. Absolutely. I know in, in my current role that that's what we've worked out with our, our HR function. And I've built a script for them, and they run through that script to get me the, the code that I need, which is then reviewed generally by the team. Uh, and, and that's one of the very first steps that we that's a very similar process to what Philip described. You know, Philip talked about working very closely with his recruiters, developing questions with them, looping them in on feedback, things of that nature. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of the same things. 100%, yes. I, I think that the best way to get high quality candidates in is to partner with your sourcing function uh, to, to produce, you know, stronger technical screening. And, and, and encourage that. I, I, you know, when I work with the HR folks, folks that I have the luxury of working with, so I, you know, I have no problem sitting down, you know, getting uh, even our, you know, our SVP of HR, in fact, sitting down and talking about an API or an IDE or technical concepts. I, you know, one of, one of the questions I ask in my role to any, any candidate, and I ask them about race conditions, and I have two acceptable classes, classes of answers for one answer is anything horse racing. If they actually read the, the websites and such and reference the industry we're in. And then the second category is obviously the technical definition of a, of a race condition. So, you know, two, two processes or, or resource consumers competing for the same resource would be a, a race condition. You know, I think I agree with you. A lot of recruiters and individuals that work in HR are very hungry to work with hiring managers and learn more about the tech. I think a lot of us realize that that's the best way to find the better candidates, better inform the candidates, and then you know be able to bring more top quality talent to the organization. Some of the challenges, we don't always get to do that. Perhaps you could take a moment to speak to the hiring managers and tell them why it's advantageous for them to work more closely with their recruiters. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to, to folks listening, I promise Adrian didn't expect this, but you know, one, one thing that he's taught me uh, you know, he's he's kind of redefined that that sourcing function uh, in thinking back on the, the amount of technical work you did with the ATSs that we worked with. I, I know you spent uh, an inordinate amount of time de doing straight development, a lot of the Python, JavaScript, to get those ATSs configured so that I know my onboarding process, you know, was, was seamless. Uh, and I, I think that, that sets a new standard. I, I'd never seen that in my career up to that point. We did some interesting things. I mean, I think you and I work closely together on some things that uh, we could talk about, some things we should probably reserve. But um, one of the interesting things was uh, building out Greenhouse and the Greenhouse services. So that was, that was really cool that we got to work on together. Yeah, I, I think that 
should be the standard of the model, honestly. I, 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 I miss having that in my current role. We've got some stuff in the works uh, to, to, to further automate things. And I, I think our, our HR function is bought in on, on technical HR, if you will. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the stuff that you built, I mean, our onboarding turnaround was, was lightning fast for a lot of the roles. And uh, I think a lot of that was a direct testament to the, uh, not just the automation in the, the ATS side or the sourcing management side, I guess, I'm sure. Uh, the people side. The people side. The interacting. Yeah. You know, that kind of relationship that you build with the hiring manager. Yeah. And it, uh, it works super effectively. And I, I think that the deeper the tech side is on, on HR, the, the more your hiring managers will appreciate it. And ultimately, the, the better the position your business will be in from a sourcing perspective across the board. I mean, there, there's so much room for innovation and there's so much repetition in, in tasks from a, from a lot of what I've seen that it, it's ripe for, for kind of disruption. And it, it's also really important uh, as the technical requirements continue to grow and, and grow. One of the things that's interesting is, you know, as you build that relationship with hiring managers, you kind of get more efficient, like you mentioned. I think I'm going to give uh, Mario a little bit of props here. He has the fastest time to hire. <laughs> and he knows where I'm going with this. He has the fastest time to hire of any hiring manager that I've ever worked with. And it was, if I, if I remember the hours correctly, it was 37 hours. It, I know we were quick and the retention was 100%. And, and it wasn't just <laughs> one candidate. I know people were probably thinking, oh my God, they hired the first candidate they, they interviewed. No, I... I, I remember screening four people, submitting three. You interviewed all of them with phone screens. You had two on sites. Yep. And picked one. That's correct. They accepted the offer same day. That's correct. And they wound up staying for the whole time we were there. Absolutely. Uh, under hiring targets, I may. That's true. Yes. That, that's also true. That also brings up another point when you talk about metrics. I don't know if you mind sharing what, what our metrics were. Not at all. Okay. You know, Mary and I, like I mentioned, we've worked together quite a bit. We've worked together at the largest paid TV programmer uh, on the planet. And we worked together at a tech startup that focuses on Salesforce. And at the last company that we worked together at, I think the submit to fill ratio was under three. The time to hire was under a week. Time to fill was about the same. So for the recruiters out there, they'll they'll understand those numbers. But basically... You know, those numbers are pretty Adrian, strong. Adrian tells me they're great. I'm 50-50 I'm because I know he knows what he's doing. <laughs> but, but really, what that speaks to is, like, it's not the recruiting. It's, it's really the relationship between the hiring manager and, you know, the recruiter. Yeah, if you're, if you're playing tech bingo at home, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If, if you're not, as a hiring manager, if you're not supporting your sourcing function... And you're sourcing people. I don't understand why you would expect to get great world class results, not getting what they want, and the stress on your your sourcing folks not you know hitting their numbers and succeeding. It, it, you know everybody loses, and then the candidates out the field, you know, end up misaligned. You know, perhaps of these weird referrals where uh, you know we get folks in that that probably have a great skill set, but just not what not what we're looking for. So I, I think the tighter that that cohesion is uh, the, the better results you get. Absolutely, I mean, I can I can say that in my career. Certainly, having worked in not just with Adrian, but you know, I, I can name one other great uh, sourcing you know type engineer that I've worked with, uh, and then definitely a, a couple places that were that were awful. 
And it, it took months to get what should be very simple hires in. Uh, absolutely. One of the interesting things you mentioned was the candidate experience. And that's not just when we talk about it from you know, the interview perspective, because you're right, we need to bring in the right people for interviews. But it also translates into the employee experience. One thing I could say about working with you is you have an extraordinarily high retention rate too. So we've already talked about your high efficiency rate on the interviewing side and how quickly you're filling positions and how you're filling them with the right people. How do you then get them to stay in the role? Sure. And thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the kind words. Uh, yeah. How do I, how do I get them to stay in the role? I bribe them, Adrian. That's the easiest way. You just cold, hard cash. Always good. <laughs> <'Cause> no, I, <laughs> that's people don't work for smiles and hugs. <laughs> they do not. Uh, no, that's not true. I mean, I do, I do pay my employees in cash uh, and not smiles and hugs. Uh, thank you. A wise man said that once. <laughs> A very wise man once told us that. Very wise. Uh, how do I get them to stay? I, I think it's, it's setting the expectations up front. I think to, to circle back to your, to your direct question, I, I think it's setting the expectations up front of what, what you can expect the role to ask of you and the rewards you can expect for succeeding in that role. Another thing that I, I've always done with my nation's file style is people over uh, company. And I know that gets me in a lot of hot water with investors sometimes and, and more senior management, but I, I'm firmly of the belief that great people can go anywhere. You know, companies come and go. I mean, how many times has company X changed CEO or, or company Y has you know, ousted their CFO for the frontline folks and the folks in the trenches are, are still there keeping the lights on? That's, that's the truth. I mean, first of all, we've worked together on multiple occasions. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I think we both worked for companies that are no longer in business. To speak to your point, I mean, it's really not only the connection between the recruiter and the hiring manager, but that manager and their employees. Absolutely. It's being honest and explaining the value proposition for, you know, the, the candidate and what the role entails. Uh, you know, other things that I've done for attention, you know, continuous check-ins, one-on-ones, uh, thinking, you know, value first. Putting professional development at the front also assists with retention. Understanding what an employee is looking for in a particular role, getting them that and removing impediments to that. Without your team, you're, you're a coach without a team. You don't, you don't win championships as just a coach. <laughs> Speaking of teams, are you hiring now? Or are you looking for any new talent? Yes, uh, we are hiring. So I've got positions open for uh, TypeScript, a lot of TypeScript. Uh, application, business logic, front-end type TypeScript, testing, engineering with, with TypeScript, if I didn't stress that one enough, proficiencies with Jest, C-sharp, containerization, virtualization technology, .NET Core, front-end, back-end, orchestration, infrastructure, data engineering, uh, data reporting. <laughs> Sounds like you're quite busy. Yes, yes, sir. We're, uh, we're expanding quite a bit, thankfully. That's great. So tell everyone how they can get a hold of you if they're interested. Uh, you can email me directly at uh, m-a-r-i-o dot b as in boy, i-v as in victor, at gmail.com. Listen, thank you for making the long trip down here. We appreciate you joining us in studio, and best of luck with all that hiring. Thanks, Adrian. It's been a blast. That's another episode of Recruiting is a Cluster with Adrian Russo. To learn more about Adrian and how Recruit Locator can support your business in this brave new world, visit RecruitLocator.com. 
please subscribe and join us again next time as we untangle this beautiful mess that is recruitment. Cheers.